News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, I get the very distinct impression from people out there that there is a lot of frustration with these COVID-19 rule breakers out there. Later on in the show, we're having Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth on to talk about the increase, the uptick in tickets that they have been handing out to rule breakers. But I'm asking you this morning, too, about, okay, so let's ask him, why don't you do this? Like, why don't you do blank? What would be your suggestion for that? Some people are sending me some pretty harsh ideas for a crackdown. So you tell me, simi at cknw.com. That's coming up a little later. Right now, let's talk about jobs. So it was a very bumpy year in 2020 for that, right? But for a lot of the year, we did see jobs recovering. Unemployment numbers seemed to get better through the summer and into the fall. That didn't necessarily happen in the last month of 2020. So now, tomorrow morning, we're going to get the numbers for January, first month of 2021. So what are we expecting? Well, let's talk to Brendan Bernard about that, economist with Indeed.ca. Good morning, Brendan. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. So we're bracing ourselves, right? Because December didn't look good. But how's January looking right now in your estimation? Uh, I think January will be another one, probably more similar to December than uh, than other months. Uh, so, so December really was the story of the shutdown sectors versus the rest of the economy. And we saw areas like accommodation and food services, arts and recreation take a, take a fall back and actually dec- continue a decline uh, that started in October uh, when the second wave in some parts of the country really started to kick up. And and, and I think in January, um, you know, uh, we've seen, uh, for example, new restrictions come on since the December job numbers in places like Alberta and Ontario outside of, uh, outside of uh, the Toronto area. Um, uh, Ontario had a big surge in cases uh, post holidays. Um, and, And so just in general, I think we're going to be in more of this same world where, You've got most of the economy, uh, I think, doing pretty well, uh, though, uh, you know, always uh, uh, risks. But then the the pandemic exposed sectors um, under probably further pressure. Right, because, I mean, the beginning of the pandemic was bad. We saw a huge job loss. It was like going off a cliff. Uh, This second wave, though, even though the numbers were just as bad, it seems like we made more of an effort to uh, mitigate those job losses, to keep some things open. Would you say that's true? Uh, I I think so. Um, You you had, for example, in the first wave, um, huge job losses in areas like construction, manufacturing, transportation, um, uh, areas that have been much more insulated uh, this this second time around. Um, and, and even in the pandemic-exposed sectors, uh, the, uh, you, you don't see the same degree of plunge uh, that you saw earlier on. Um, it, it, but, 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 but it's still, it's still substantial. And it's, and, it's, and it's the main reason that the Canadian labour market is further from its uh, February level than it ever reached during... Uh, the 2008-2009 recession. Okay, so are there areas that look like bright spots, though, Brendan? Like, is there still some hiring going on out there? Absolutely. And so so we've been tracking Indeed job, uh, job postings on Indeed since the start of the pandemic, and they've seen a pretty good recovery. Uh, we, we got basically back to uh, 
typical levels for that time of year uh, in December. Um, now, January started off a little slow, but even there, we're seeing uh, it, overall uh, the the rebound in employer hiring appetite remains pretty solid. Um, does it, it's it's not a uh, clear cut story across the economy. Those areas. Uh, that are really struggling under the pandemic. There, there's not much hiring appetite there. But if you look at areas ranging from healthcare, tech, uh, construction, manufacturing, uh, there, there's definitely uh, employer appetite uh, to, to, to find new workers. Yeah, is there? Would you say a labor shortage in some of those areas? Because I was looking at postings the other day, and health and tech in particular, there's tons of postings out there. Uh, so healthcare is one where uh, I, I'm definitely uh, concerned about just because can- Canada even entered this pandemic uh, with a problem. We saw, for example, even even leading up to this um, uh, job job vacancies for nurses uh, just continually climb o- o- over the years. Um, uh, uh, in, in tech, I'm a little more optimistic uh, just because that sector does. Uh, seem to have grown pretty strongly, even when there's been a lot of uh, job openings. And so I, I take that more as a sign that just a, that's a growing sector that's looking to add workers. But uh, in, in some areas of the economy, uh, nursing, personal support workers, um, it, it's definitely a concern. And, you know, we're in now uh, almost a year into this pandemic. It's definitely got to be um, uh a trying uh, slog for healthcare workers across the country who've just been battling this uh, day in and day out. Okay, so then looking ahead to the spring, uh, per, you know, potentially numbers have gone down, right, right across the country for COVID nineteen. What are you looking ahead to? Well, uh, in the spring, you know, it, it, all this comes uh, is going to come off of getting the pandemic under control, but. Um, uh, you know, right now, there's no indoor dining in large parts of the country, Ontario, Quebec, uh, Alberta. Um, and so uh, getting that open again, having it safe to reopen that again, um, will is kind of one of the key one of the key steps for getting the overall job market. Uh, back to normal, um, and, and 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 you can just uh, keep expanding the list of uh, sort of areas of the uh, economy and our daily lives that just like can't function normally as right. long as it, we're in a public health crisis. And so, getting those numbers down, and then realistically, like having the vaccine rollouts really start to pick up, so that we know that they can stay down. Uh, I, I think that's key. That is key, Brendan. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Brendan Bernard is an economist with Indeed.ca previewing the January jobs numbers, which come out tomorrow. He's predicting that it'll be very similar to what we heard in December, which is not great news. Not entirely unexpected either, given that we're kind of in the middle of this second wave here. Starting to look good. There's some positive things. I think Alberta is talking about potentially loosening some of their restrictions coming up next week. Uh, But will that mean a rebound in jobs? That is the big question on that. This is Mornings with Simi. We need tougher laws in this country that are going to properly protect uh, the privacy rights of our citizens. That is BC Information and Privacy Commissioner Michael McAvoy. He was speaking with our Jill Bennett yesterday, talking about this 
landmark report that came out yesterday, this week, actually. A company called Clearview AI was determined to have violated privacy laws protecting personal images. You've probably heard of that company in the news, but we're going to break this all down for you, like what happened and what it means to you. Joining us now is Anne Kavokian, the Executive Director of the Global Privacy and Security by Design Centre and a former three-term Information and Privacy Commissioner for Ontario. Anne, thanks for being back with us. Oh, my pleasure, Sammy. Now, for people who don't know, what is Clearview AI? Clearview AI is this company that scraped 3.3 billion uh, facial images off of social media, Facebook, etc., and then sold it to law enforcement agencies all around the world, lots in Canada, U.S., etc., and also companies. And these are your facial images that they have taken without any consent on your part, not even notice to you. And they're just using this blatantly to make money off of law enforcement agencies, etc., who are scooping it up. It's completely unacceptable. Okay, so what did this report say about different police departments' use of these images? They said it's illegal. Using this uh, Clearview, what it engages in is mass surveillance, and it's illegal. So uh, Commissioner Michael McAvoy in BC, he did a great job, along with the other commissioners and the Federal Privacy Commissioner of Canada, to basically say this is completely unacceptable. It's illegal. It's scraping people's most sensitive personal information, and it represents, you know, mass surveillance. So I applaud them for their report. So do we know who was using this? Oh, lots of law enforcement agencies across Canada. I remember when this story broke last year in uh, Toronto, the police, they were using it here, law enforcement agencies, the police here in Toronto, and they were doing it without the... the um, chief police officers uh, under uh, consent. The chief, the police chief here in Toronto didn't know that his department had purchased this service. So as soon as he learned about it, he shut it down. And that happened in Edmonton and across Canada as well. A lot of the law enforcement agencies were buying these services without their police chiefs being aware of it, certainly never having consented to it. And as soon as they learned about it, they shut it down. Okay, but then how do we know that, I mean, what happens to all those images, right? What happens to all of that stuff and information that they had? Very good point. Well, it's unlikely they're going to delete it. Um, The request was in this report to Clearview, stop operating in Canada and delete all the images you've already collected. So they're no longer in Canada, apparently. They're not doing it anymore, but they haven't deleted it. And you see, that's the problem. The strength of the privacy laws in Canada, we can't make them delete this information. That's why we need to have stronger laws. So for the average person out there, they may have scraped your image, the pictures that you put out there on Facebook or something. For sure. In fact, if you're on Facebook, they've got your images. I mean, I think that's a given. Unfortunately, this is a state of affairs when you have companies like this, like Clearview, that are just engaging in such unethical behavior. And this is, as I said, the most sensitive biometric information um, that you can have. And to collect this without the knowledge or consent of the individuals involved, awful. What were they using it for? What would they use it for? Well, law enforcement, they're selling it to police, um, law enforcement agencies, because they're using it almost like a like like a lineup, you know. They're comparing uh, whoever they've arrested with these images to see if there's any any connection, and that's the 
awful part about this. It's like you're in a police lineup, 3.3 billion people. Okay, so is anything going to change, though? Like, this report sounds like it was very definitive, and it really pointed the finger at these police forces, but what's going to change, Anne? Well, we do have, although it's not a very strong privacy bill, uh, C-11, that has been introduced in by the federal government to update our federal private sector uh, legislation, which is so dated and weak, and it's uh, it's terrible. So we, there is an understanding that we need to strengthen our privacy laws Unfortunately, they're not doing a very good job at it, but at least it's a start. Okay, it sounds like we have a ways to go on this. Um, Anne, thank you so much for your time on this. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm so sorry. Thank you, Simi. All the best. You too. That's Anne Kavukian, who is the Executive Director of the Global Privacy and Security by Design Centre. Uh, she was a three-term Information and Privacy Commissioner for Ontario, and she's talking about the report that came out this week from Privacy and Information Commissioners in BC and that province, saying that, listen, it's clear that some police departments across the country violated Canada privacy laws by using companies like Clearview AI. The question is, what are they going to do now with all the information they already scraped off the internet? This is Mornings with Simi. Is it possible to build a long-term care home in such a way that you could protect it from a future pandemic? It is an intriguing idea, right? And it's one that Baptist Housing is actually thinking about. They're redesigning Inglewood Care Center in West Vancouver. We wanted to get an idea of well, what kind of things they're putting into place to make this happen. So joining us now is Mark Kinna, the president and CEO of Baptist Housing. Mark, thanks for being here. Thank you, Simi. Now, this is such a, a fascinating thing. Like, where do you even start? Well, you know, COVID-19, is, uh, it's brought the issue of, of seniors care into the provincial and national dialogue, and we all hoped it would be short-lived. We hoped it would go away. We hoped it wouldn't disrupt our lives, and then it killed many, many of our elders, and that's devastating. And so as we uh, are working on the the first steps of redesigning Inglewood Care Centre in West Vancouver, uh, we've got a unique opportunity to, to, to think about what we've been through and to look ahead to see how we can protect vulnerable seniors uh, from the ground up in the design of this new, uh, this new campus of care. Okay, so then what is it, though, about the design that might help? Well, as we think about what, uh, what current design looks like, I mean, the, the existing Inglewood Care Centre, uh, part of the building is 57 years old. Uh, currently, 34 of the residents who live there of the 230 uh, share rooms with, with other residents. Uh, they don't have personal showers in their own washrooms. Uh, and so as we think about redesigning a building, uh, we want to make sure, first of all, that every single person has a private room, that every person has their own private washroom with their own uh, private shower uh, so that they can have uh, an opportunity to not uh, be, be with another resident in their own personal space. Uh, so that would be, you know, a, a great place to start. I think every person would want to have the dignity of their own uh, private space. Uh, and then it's incorporating other things like the way uh, workflows happen to use uh, separate elevators for team members and visitors to reduce contact uh, during situations where you might be uh, dealing with the, the spread of, uh, of transmission of disease. Okay, that, that's a part that's really interesting to me. It's about with residents interacting, say, with people outside, uh, deliveries and service people and all of that. Are you looking at finding ways so that there is less interaction? 
Well, uh, that's a, there's a double-edged sword there because uh, interaction between residents and their loved ones and people from uh, the community uh, is one of the things that helps our residents experience life well. Uh, and, and this is all about the, the seniors who, who make Baptist housing their home. We want to make sure that they have an experience where they can thrive, and part of thriving is to have interaction. And so when you think about, uh, about redesigning, and, you, and a lot of our, our peers and, and Baptist housing as well, we've tried to create opportunities to allow for visiting that is safe during the pandemic. Well, in the future, we want to build into the design of the building an opportunity. So it, it, even in an outbreak situation where visitors could come uh, and they could visit their loved one in close proximity, you know, with uh, the thinnest plexiglass possible between them, uh, in a private space where they, they, they actually don't enter the same airspace, yet they can enjoy a visit uh, in safety to help those residents not to experience the isolation that has come for so many during COVID. Right. Like, hands down, yes, they absolutely need outside visitors. But when it comes to, like, deliveries and services and everything else, like people who are coming and going from the care home, is there a way to design it so that they don't necessarily interact with everybody else or wander through the hallways or anything like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, to, we, we're, we're designing in separate controlled entrances for uh, for visitors, for our team members, uh, uh, making sure that support services processes can come uh, in and out of the building and up to the floors where care is being delivered through uh, back-of-house non-resident areas. Uh, all of this can be you know, purpose-built right now because of the, uh, you know, the, 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 the time frame we're in in terms of, uh, of starting the building development process. You know, even think about purpose-built areas for people to change their clothes and, and prepare for work. You know, you might think you have a few people, two or three people who ride their bike to work. Well, now we've got a situation where you might need to have a couple of dozen people uh, changing from street clothes into, into work clothes in a protected area to don and doff PPE. Uh, and a lot of our, our residences around the province are not, not built to have that kind of space. And so we can build that right in. That's so okay. It's things that you never really thought about, right? Before this, before this all happened. Well, you know, that, I mean, that's that's exactly the point. One of the key learnings of COVID nineteen has been that our behavior uh, at work, you know, always a core issue. But now, our behavior outside of work in our communities with the people that we're close to affects everyone around us, and it affects the, the, the seniors that we serve. And so, not only does off duty contact in COVID nineteen uh, become a life and death issue but also how you get from home to work and that process of making sure you're not bringing uh, viruses in uh, is also super important. So it's things we didn't really think that clearly or or in detail about before. Yeah, so when will Inglewood Care Centre be all done? Well, we're working on on our application to West Vancouver District Council. Uh, That'll uh, come this spring. Uh, We hope to have the the first phase, which is the rebuilding of the 230-suite long-term care uh, building uh, within the next uh, few years. It could take us uh, five to seven years to completely build out uh, the whole campus of care because phase two will also have an additional 400 residences for seniors, uh, which uh, include affordable housing, memory care, uh, and a lot of other services that the seniors of West Vancouver desperately need. All right. Well, Mark, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Simi. Appreciate that. Mark Kinna is the president and CEO of Baptist Housing. They're redesigning a care center, kind of a campus in West Vancouver, but they're thinking about 
things that they hadn't, well, long-term care homes hadn't really had to think about before, but how do you build something and redesign it to protect people in a long-term care home? Just think about the workers alone. Uh, What an interesting thing that is, that you have to have now space for them. Maybe they need to like, you know, have a shower when they come to work, before they go in to work with people, where do they put all their stuff? And that's just things we didn't worry about before, but that is our new reality, isn't it? If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. So we were just talking about redesigning long-term care homes in the future so they can kind of pandemic-proof it or at least put some things into place that would help protect the residents who live there. Now, there's a lot of anxiety about that. A lot of anxiety these days about the long-term care home industry, right? All the outbreaks are just kind of exacerbating that fear there. So what are seniors doing or families of seniors doing to try to mitigate that or cope with that? Joining us now is Jeremiah Crystal, head of the Home Instead Senior Care Office at Services Richmond, Surrey, North Delta, and Queensboro. Jeremiah, thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Tell me, what is business like for you guys right now? Are you getting more phone calls? Um, we are getting a lot of phone calls. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think people are, are interested in looking into their options for, for home care, especially with some family members not being able to visit like they used to. Right. So you're saying that what they don't want to go into long term care, so they want what more care at home? Um, what well, I wouldn't say necessarily they don't want to go into long-term care. I think it's a care is a continuum. So there's many different options for people, but certainly, you know, we're seeing an uptick with people's desire to stay at home. Um, and I think again, it's, it's been an option for a long time that people have been interested with being able to stay within their own home where they're comfortable and may feel safest. The pandemic may have pushed that as well. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a desire to, to right. be at home. Mm-hmm. But even if you, like, you do stay at home, you still have to deal with the issue of somebody coming in to help you. So then, Jeremiah, how do you and your company deal with that? Um, well, like as, in regards to like the safety with the yes. pandemic. Um, so, as always, we've always looked to personalized care. So looking to have consistent caregivers with, with clients. So that certainly helps because it's not going to be a rotating door of people coming into the house. And so, again, we're building that out. The caregivers themselves are going to as few clients as possible um, in the community. And that definitely, definitely helps. Yeah, was that tricky to kind of make that happen in the beginning? Um, well, it's, it's somewhat consistent with what we've always done. Like, it's, it's always been really important that you build a relationship with clients. So it was never, it, we never had the, a working model where we had multiple people going in to visit, you know, one client per se. It would be looking for the right connection with one caregiver with one client. Obviously, care plans are different depending on the need of care required, but but typically we're looking to have caregivers, you know, if they probably average maybe two clients per week, roughly. So so not not so hard to manage, no. Okay, so what would you say is in demand right now for home care? What level of care do people need most? Oh gosh, um, there's quite there's quite a range. It can be everything from companionship I think which is increased due to isolation isolation has always been a challenge with seniors before before the pandemic started and I think it, it, the pandemic's definitely exacerbated that with again if you think of families who live maybe in other provinces or countries who can't as readily be here to, to check in or visit so that's that's one where we're seeing a lot of um, but also the other side of the spectrum with people who require support with their their personal care so 
whether it's help with bathing or a reminder to take meds, helping with, with the errands, shopping, nutrition. Um, we're, we're seeing a bit of all of it, really. Oh, so fascinating. Jeremiah, thank you for your time this morning. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. If you've checked out a newspaper this morning, you might have seen a blank front page. There's a reason for that. It's a message that multiple newspapers are trying to send about the state of the industry. One of their biggest concerns, how much should companies like Google and Facebook pay for the content that they are taking from newspapers. Social media giants also suck up more than 80% of digital advertising revenue, and yet a lot of their content, a lot of their traffic, I should say, is generated by news content that they pull from Canadian companies. This is a topic that I know the government, not just here, is talking about, but in Australia, they're looking to do something about this as well. So let's talk to John Hines now, CEO of News Media Canada. That's a lobby group that represents media companies in this country. John, thank you very much for being here. Good morning. So the message is an important one that they wanted to send this morning. Uh, are you, when you look at countries around the world, is there one that you look at that think we should do what they're doing? Has anybody come up with an answer to this? <laughs> well, there are a couple, actually. I mean, you, you referenced the Australian model. The Australian government has legislation now before their parliament that is going to put in place uh, a code of conduct where um, the digital giants will have to compensate uh, news creators for, for the use of their content. So um, we think that's a really good model. Um, the other model that's been put forward is, is in France. Uh, recently, uh, last week actually, uh, the publishers in France signed an agreement with Google, and Google is going to pay to, uh, to use the content uh, from French publishers. So, um, you know, as they say, this is, this is not just a Canadian issue, but, uh, but an issue around the world. Now, how big of an impact, John, has this had? Because I think for a lot of Canadians, they think, well, if I'm reading the story and it comes from your website, what's the big deal? Well, it's had a huge impact. I mean, I think, you know, but not only for, for newspapers, but also for, for radio stations and, and for TV. Uh, you know, we've lost about 250 newspapers over the past couple of years. Uh, we've seen a lot of radio stations and small TV stations close simply because, um, you know, the economics just don't work. And they particularly don't work if you can't get paid for for, for your content, because um, good journalism is, is expensive, as you know, and, and uh, requires an investment. So it seems to me that, you know, 10 years ago, the idea was the paywall, right? Like, oh, we're yeah. going to put everything behind a paywall. That doesn't seem to have worked, did it? Well, you know, I think the paywall is in, it, it works for some people, but you know, there's a lot of even even paywalled content gets you know uh, gets onto to the site. So, um, you know, I think um, you know there, there's still the advertising market out there, and there's still a lot of content, or most content, is circulated uh, for free. Okay, so then what can a government do to help out? Well, I think the solution that the Australians are putting forward is to require require payment for content for content. So um, the good news with the Australian model is that you know it doesn't involve taxation, it doesn't involve consumers. It's simply requiring the digital companies to sit down with creators of content and publishers and, and reach an agreement. Um, that's really what we're asking, and uh, uh, we just we just want to have a, a fair a fair market or a fair fair negotiations and fair compensation for the use of the content. So, um, you know, that, that, I think, is the, the best solution. What did the companies themselves, what did Google and Facebook say about this? 
Well, they've been fighting, you know, tooth and nail in Australia to stop it. Um, interesting enough, though, they agreed to it in France. So, um, you know, I think that uh, they they don't want it. I don't think they, they want to pay for that content. Um, but as I say, they have agreed to it in France, and we, we hope they would agree to it in Canada. Is that, have you had hopeful signs on that front from the federal government? Uh, we, I, I know they're thinking about this. Yeah, no, the federal government has been has been really positive to date. It was, they included it in the throne speech. They they mentioned it in their economic update reason, recently. And Minister Gibo, who's the Minister of Canadian Heritage and in charge of this file, has uh, over the past couple of weeks been very, very positive and said that he would be introducing legislation in the spring. So um, we're, we're quite heartened by that. You mentioned all the newspapers that have kind of shut down over the years. Like, what is the state of the industry right now? The industry, it's very difficult and, and, you know, obviously made more difficult by COVID because of a lack of advertising. But, you know, when you have 80% of the digital market the dollars flowing to two foreign players, that doesn't leave a lot of uh, room for for local uh, for local public publications to to get that money which they need to create that content. Okay, so what are the next steps then? Well, the next steps are that we hope the government will introduce legislation quickly, um, so we can sit down with the 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 uh, digital players and negotiate a, a fair compensation scheme. So, if people see that blank page today on the front page of newspapers right across the country, what's the message that you want them to take away from it? <clears throat> Well, I think the I think the message we'd like to say is that this actually this matters to Canadians and it matters to their communities and it matters to to really to to civil 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 society. Um, you know, no news. Um, you know, I, I think it's one of those things that you don't know what you you've got till it's gone. And um, you know, we're seeing across the country small smaller communities where the local news has, newspaper or, or radio station has disappeared, and they simply don't have. Uh, have any local content and local news. And so no one's keeping an eye on city councils or town councils or courthouses or, or, or any, or government. So, you know, it's important to, to Canadians. Obviously people, people like news and, and read news, but, but also too, it's important for, for the broader, um, sort of democratic and, and civil society. John, thank you for your time on that today. Thanks. John Hines is the CEO of News Media Canada. That's a lobby group that represents media companies in Canada. And the pressure is on right now for the federal government to help out. The big issue here is digital advertising revenue. Companies like Google and Facebook make billions upon billions of dollars off of digital advertising revenue. You know that? you do Think about it. Like If you did a search on Google 10 years ago, uh, you may have gotten your results and one ad-related, you know, result at the top. Now, I have to scroll down almost to the bottom of the page before I can get past the ads to actually find the results of the search that I just did. They are raking in huge amounts of money. A lot of the things that they are, you know, posting on their links and making advertising revenue off of is content that comes from different media organizations. And so the media organizations are saying, hey, we want our cut of that money that you are making off of our content. Is that fair, do you think? Is it time for the government to step in and make companies like Google and Facebook share some of that? Or do you think, hey, you know what? These companies, they need to modernize. They need to pivot. They need to be able to do this. One of the rare uh, companies, media companies, that is actually making money by doing more digital and going digital is the New York Times. Uh, They were in deep trouble, what is that, 10, 12 years ago during the recession? Uh, And they needed to be bailed out, essentially, by a very rich billionaire. Uh, But they paid him back 
paid off the loan, got control back because they pivoted to digital. And now digital only subscriptions are some of the fastest growing revenue that the New York Times has. But not every paper is the New York Times and can't do it. So does the industry need some help? This is Mornings with Simi. You know, some COVID-19 rule breakers are front page news, so to speak, right? Others are more routine. But the thing is, they're all a concern. More and more tickets are being handed out. We wanted to talk about that this morning with the help of Mike Farnworth, Public Safety Minister and Solicitor General, who joins us now. Thank you very much for being here. My pleasure. It sounds like it's been a busy couple of weeks. Would you say there's an increase in tickets being handed out? I'd certainly say, yeah, there has been uh, an increase of uh, tickets uh, that have been handed out. I mean, certainly some of them have clearly been uh, quite high profile. And I think we saw an increase just prior to uh, prior to uh, Christmas uh, and it's continued uh, through until uh, until now. Is that greater enforcement? I think it's a combination of stepped-up enforcement and that, uh, as you're aware, we've had some uh, uh, some high-profile cases, um, the one in Vancouver and then the one up in the, the uh, in uh, that went up to Yukon and uh, and some others. Uh, and I think it's all a reflection that the uh, that uh, the, the police have handed out uh, uh, some uh, some um, um, tickets uh, and recommending of uh, charges that uh, go to Crown Prosecution um, for, uh, you know, even stiffer penalties. And those are some of the things that we've been seeing. Are you concerned about that? Like, does it seem like if there's more tickets being handed out, are people not getting the message? Like, what is going on? I think most people are getting the message and most people are doing the right thing. Um, There have been so far about 806 tickets um, handed out. Um, and about 141 of them have been for at the $2,300 level for organizers of of gatherings, for example. And then there have been another 28 for uh, people who have done, um, you know, liquor violations. The vast majority of ticket uh, violations are for those who refuse to uh, wear a mask in public or comply with uh, orders from the police. Um, and I think that's where you have seen, you know, businesses stepping up, the public stepping up, making complaints, and that uh, that enforcement is taking place. Will there be, you think, more enforcement, or will, be, will you know, look out this weekend for Super Bowl Sunday parties? Absolutely, um, the police will be out. Um, the um, uh, health and uh, health and safety uh, through WorkSafe are out. Liquor inspectors are out uh, to ensure that provincial health orders uh, are um, being followed. And I think uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry's message has been clear. Um, You know, it's real simple. This weekend is not the time for Super Bowl parties. Watch it at home with your immediate members of the people who live in your uh, live in your house. How many of the fines have been paid? Like, what is the process for collecting that money? Um, So it's like any any ticket. You do have the ability to uh, to dispute it. Um, So you have 30 days to to dispute uh, the ticket. Um, then after that, uh, normally what would happen is that you would receive uh, warning uh, letters telling you, you know, you're, you've got to pay the fine. Uh, we've changed that. It now goes straight to collections um, to be followed up on uh, by a collection agency to uh, collect the, uh, the fine. Uh, and that can involve a collection agency. It can involve, you know, potentially garnishing of wages. Um, so um, enforcement follows up in that regard. 
Right. Are most people paying them, though? Do you know yet? I, I know uh, some people pay. Uh, others are disputing. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, but the bottom line is this. If you're going to get if you get this ticket, um, we will be following up uh, to ensure that it's collected on. And then, of course, there's others who are facing uh, additional charges. Uh, so police also have the ability to do what's called a long form prosecution for egregious offenses, and that can result in um, penalties of up to uh, $10,000 and one year uh, in jail. And that, of course, goes uh, before uh, before a judge. Well, let's talk about some of those repeat offenders, though, and I'm sure there are some cases like that. Are you open to, you know, hitting them harder, essentially, if they are a repeat offender? Well, that's why we've got that uh, long-form prosecution in place, and we're already seeing police have recommended charges in a number of cases, um, that, uh, where that has taken place, and I fully expect, for example, uh, obviously the you know the investigation is still uh, continuing into into what took place at the uh, at that uh, penthouse party where 77 tickets uh, were issued and the owner was uh, arrested, um, and I will not be surprised uh, if that, for example, would be one that ends up going uh, before a judge for a much more significant penalty. And then on top of that, there's also, you know, uh, in situations like that, there are penalties that can come from um, running afoul of of city bylaws, for example, running a business without a license or without a liquor license. Um, So there may be uh, be additional things there. And, of course, if someone, uh, you know, is refusing to comply with police or being abusive, uh, they could face additional charges, perhaps uh, potentially under the uh, under the criminal code. It's a criminal code offense. Okay, so then if it goes to court and that happens, then are you saying it's the judge can then impose higher fines? Yep, uh, under the uh, Emergency Program Act, um, uh, higher fines can be put in place, um, and that's why it can be up to ten thousand dollars and one year in jail. And of course, uh, depending on what they find in the course of their investigation. Uh, there may be other charges, other offenses that occur under other sections of the criminal code uh, that uh, they uh, they could be charged with as, as well. So do you think police departments are getting more used to this now? Like, is that going to become more commonplace, perhaps? Uh, certainly, uh, um, what we've seen is, is that uh, the police have got the tools that they need and uh, they're taking it very seriously. Uh, you know, and it's a and it's a difficult job for them sometimes to, uh, you know, people uh, we've seen some of these, these these individuals. They just seem to think that the law does not apply to them. The rules don't apply to them. That they can do whatever they want. And you know, we've heard uh, places uh, reports of, of them being abusive or spitting on police and, and just behavior that is completely unacceptable. Uh, and the, and the, and the police uh, the police know how to deal with that. All right, Minister Farnworth. Thank you for your time this morning. My pleasure. This is mornings with Simi. Now, you've probably heard about this story in the last few days, but we wanted to take a moment here to really expand on the legacy of an extraordinary man, the legacy of Charon Gill. He was an icon in the community. I grew up hearing his name with all the work that he did, known for helping to organize and bring attention to BC farmers, his work to fight racism. And we think, you know, a lot of that should be remembered, especially his friendship and help that he extended to so many people out there. So joining us now to talk about this is Raj Chahan, who's the NDP MLA for Burnaby Edmonds, of course, the now Speaker of the House and a longtime friend of Charon Gill. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your program, Simi. Well, we really wanted to talk about this because, you know, he, Charon Gill was such an important person. What did he mean to you? Well, he was um, a um, true friend, you know, like uh, somebody who stood for 
people's uh, issues, people's rights, you know, uh, without thinking about himself at any time. You know, like his legacy, as you mentioned, uh, his passion and fight for working people forever will be missed. Uh, you know, he was a, he was a true champion for social justice and human rights. What um, what kind of is like? What drove him to do all that? Do you think? Like he clearly believed in helping out anybody, any time. But but why? Well, you know, that's the kind of person he was. Uh, you know, when he. Um, <clears throat> was working as a social worker he saw the plight of so many people that he was trying to help and assist and he realized that our society is not as such as we all wish it to be uh, and he had seen uh, women in um, such a you know dire situation and he saw um, uh, first nation people then he also experienced uh, so much racism you know like in the 70s uh, you probably were a you know small child in those days. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, uh, yeah, and um, we know we uh, we saw racism in your face, kind of racism. You know, people's windows were smashed, people were beaten up, uh, and um, so we were uh, fighting against that kind of uh, situation here in uh, British Columbia. And in 1970, you know, like in, at around that time. We were also thinking to organize farm workers in British Columbia because there were no laws, employment standards, labor code, health and safety, none applied to farm workers. So in that, um, the whole debate uh, discussion, uh, some of us got together. Then I met Sharon Gale first time in 1978 uh, and uh, asked him to join uh, me and my other friends uh, to do something about farm workers. And, you know, when I met met him first time, I, it felt like that I knew him forever. <laughs> that kind of personality, you know, like really outgoing, very friendly and uh, just willing to do um, anything for people. I'd always wondered about the obstacles that people like you and he must have faced because I, I grew up hearing those names and hearing your names and you were in the news. But what was it like away from the news? Like, how did people treat you when you were raising a lot of these issues? Um, you know, it's, it, I never uh, thought about, you know, that I was uh, doing something different or Shiran was doing something different or unique. We just did it, you know, and I, um, you know, met with people, um, uh, mingled with people, just like any ordinary uh, individual would do. But the issue was that we wanted to raise awareness. We wanted to motivate, uh, to mobilize people to make sure that they uh, are not afraid of standing up for their rights, you know, like uh, speaking up about these issues. And so that's what we did. And once we started that, first uh, organizing farm workers and farm workers organizing committee in 1979, then Canadian Farm Worker Union 1980. In the same year, we uh, started BC Organization to Fight Racism. And, uh, you know, when that organization, when we uh, were uh, again uh, sitting there discussing everything, we had a very broad-based group that, you know, was part of it. And, you know, everybody agreed that Shiran should be the president of BCOFR, and he broadened it so much, you know, like we uh, were successful 
engaging the First Nations, Indigenous uh, faith groups, uh, labor movement, uh, in everything. It, it really worked so well. It, what always struck me about him was that he was just so kind, so helpful. Anytime mm-hmm. you asked for anything, right? There was never a yeah. no. <laughs> Yeah, no, he was a relentless worker in his desire for equality and fairness for everyone. You know, like he was, you know, like, and he did with smile. You know, like, Always. you know, like, even, even, you know, like when we disagree on something, he will come back. It's okay. You know, he will smile. It's okay. Let's sit down and talk again. That kind of thing. You know, it was a very outgoing, friendly, open-minded person, but still very serious about social justice all the time. When you look at the what farm workers, the difference today between regulations now and regulations then, do you think he had a big part in that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, um, in the 70s and 80s, the farm workers, uh, you know, in, uh, uh, CKNW did such a good job covering us with on rape mares program mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, um, Bill Good and all those people did such a good job uh, talking about farm workers in those days, but there were no laws. You know, like the people are still at the mercy of labor contractors and the farmers uh, who were not treating workers, uh, you know, with respect. But then in 1990, when uh, the NDP government came to power, you know, we were able to uh, change lots of things. Now, you know, we have come a long way since uh, those days, but still, it's, you know, like a lot more uh, need to be done uh, to protect farm workers and also on the issue of racism. You know, racism is still there. We all know that, you know, it's, uh, it may be it, it has a different face, but, uh, you know, um, uh, we have to, we can't give up. Yeah, continue the fight. Thank you for your time on that this morning. Thank you, Simi. Anytime. Thank Bye-bye. you for helping us to remember an amazing person. That's Rod Shahan, who's the NDP MLA for Burnaby Edmonds, of course, Speaker of the Legislature and a longtime friend of Charon Gill, who passed away earlier this week. Take a moment and read about him this week if you can, if you haven't already. I know I said that the other day, but there are certain people who have a lot to do with the history and shaping of you know laws and rules and things in our province and regulations. That was one of them. He was one of them. When it came to farm workers and their rights and talking about racism and human rights, he did a lot on that, fought his whole life for it.